0: to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 22, The Tour, part two, recorded here on on a damp morning, but it's been an otherwise very dry stretch, on July 12th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oakes of Snail. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Atom Age Vampire Cat in the Brain. And our outro is Hummingbird. And we're continuing our three-part series on the tour. Welcome to Part 2. We have some corrections. I said that the Olympic record for triple jump was like 13 meters, but of course that's ludicrous. The The men's world record is actually 18.29 meters. That's 60 feet. Some dude triple jumped. It uh, turns out that I know more new pornographer songs than I thought I did, though not nearly well enough to tell you what the names of those songs are. But that was still a cool concert that we went to in Peterborough the other weekend, so that was fun. And finally, the correct play from the outfield wasn't to try and gun the runner out at second base. It was to hit the cutoff. Guys, if you're in the outfield, the play is always just hit the cutoff. In dinosaur news from the journal Current Biology, published this July, a new paper introduces another example of a massive late Cretaceous theropod with dinky Tyrannosaur arms. But it wasn't a Tyrannosaur, and... The paper names a new species. Tyrannosaurs and abelosaurs are characterized by highly reduced forelimbs that stand in contrast to their huge dimensions and massive skulls. And as well as those two well-known examples, apparently the cacarodontosauridae do this as well. These animals are less well-known, but were the dominant predators of the early Cretaceous and were really huge too. The new paper, New Giant Carnivorous Dinosaur Reveals Convergent Evolutionary Trends in Theropod Arm Reduction, shows that a, a new species named Maraxis Gigas from the Huancul Formation of northern Patagonia, Argentina, also had greatly diminished forearms. The name Maraxis Gigas honors a dragon from George R. R. Martin's novel, A Song of Ice and Fire, and Gigas is Greek for giant. So, this is the big dragon from Game of Thrones Guy's book. The holotype, MMCHPV65, is housed at the Museo Municipal Ernesto Bachman and was uncovered from the Juan Cuel Formation. It's comprised of a complete skull, pectoral and pelvic elements, partial forelimbs, complete hindlimbs, fragmentary ribs, and cervical and dorsal vertebrae, a sacrum, and several caudal vertebrae. And now, it's become the most complete carcharodontosaurid skeleton known from the Southern Hemisphere. maraxis "...preserves novel anatomical information for derived carcharodontosaurids, including an almost complete forelimb that provides evidence for convergent allometric trends in forelimb reduction among three lineages of large-bodied mega-predatory non-avian theropods, including a remarkable degree of parallelism between the latest diverging tyrannosaurids and carcharodontosaurids." They say, "...this trend coupled with a likely lower bound on forelimb reduction, hypothesized to be about 0.4 forelimb femur length, combined to produce this short-armed pattern in theropods. The almost complete cranium of Meraxes permits new estimates of skull length in Giganotosaurus, which is among the longest for theropods. Meraxes also provides further evidence that carcharodontosaurids reached peak diversity shortly before their extinction, with high rates of trade evolution and facial ornamentation possibly linked to a social signaling role. Carcarodontosaurs are named after the shape of their teeth, which resemble the shape of a shark's tooth. And these are some of the largest land predators ever, between 20 and 45 feet in length. Their body plan often consisted of a bulky and long trunk, large jaws, a big head-body ratio, and pretty long arms with three fingers at each hand. But obviously this species uh, didn't have long arms. These are possibly derived allosauroids, which were popular in the late Jurassic, that were the apex predators moving into the early Cretaceous with long, narrow skulls, large orbits, three-fingered hands, and horns or en- ornamental crests on their heads. And this is one of those moments where you get a cool new animal, and it further informs our perspective on the entire world of dinosaurs, or at least in you know uh, the southern hemisphere of le- the late Cretaceous. So it's a pretty cool paper. In other news, uh, another cool new dinosaur, this time from volume 127 of the Journal of Cretaceous Research from November 2021, Called the first definitive ankylosaurian dinosaur from the Cretaceous of Jilin province of northeastern China. In September 2017, a partial left ilium of an ankylosaurian was found in the east bank of the Chaoyang River, and it's the first definitive ankylosaurian dinosaur body fossil from Jilin province. They believe this specimen is from the Albion Cenomanian age of the Longjing formation. It's an indeterminate ankylosaurian, holotype IVP v26052 an incomplete ilium lacking the interior and posterior ends so they got like the shaft of this bone (laughs) as this is a singular bone and it itself is incomplete estimating the animal's overall size uh, overall body size is difficult says the paper given its shape and similarities with other ankylosaurs, the authors say that it may have been between five and five and a half meters long and that's about 18 feet only Sinencalosaurus is known as a northern Chinese ankylosaur, but also based on an incomplete ilium, uh, holotype ZJZ183, but this specimen IVP V26052 presents none of the diagnostic features of Sinankylosaurus, the authors say, and in fact go so far to conclude that ZJZ183 cannot be referred to the family of Ankylosauria, let alone the same animal as the specimen. So that's a bit of a bit of a <laughs> A shot fired at at the people who named the sign Ankylosaurus. Uh, this is also the easternmost known ankylosaur ilium described yet from China. Similar to the above-mentioned Meraxes, this find further informs science's view on the family of Ankylosaurians because this is the first to be known from this time and place, adding a greater context to the expanse of their origins, or I guess their their lives. This discovery extends the geographic range of Ankylosaurians and also, quote, enriches the Middle Cretaceous Ankylosaurian record, especially in North China, says the authors. That said, the specimen's incomplete preservation limits much further analysis, like diagnosing whether it was a member of Ankylosauridae or Notosauridae, meaning did it have a tail club or not. Uh, But it does suggest that perhaps more Ankylosaur remains may be found in the Longjing Formation. And with the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Okay, joining me today is Danielle Weigel, a Jurassic Park enthusiast who's been a dinosaur and Jurassic Park enthusiast since she was eight years old and uh, has become famously enamored with the film. Uh, she is an English teacher at Vincent Massey High School in Windsor. We met at uh, the summer fairgrounds when I was driving the bumper cars and I banged into her, but unfortunately i have been driving the bumper car insanely out of control as I'm cursed to do and I bumped into her while she was standing in line at a food truck. So uh, we exchanged insurance information that day. Has that prevented you from enjoying food trucks ever since?
1: Oh my gosh, no, especially <laughs> Carousel of Nations. Have you visited the Mexican carousel yet?
0: They can't keep me away even in a bumper car, yeah.
1: <laughs> Good stuff.
0: <laughs> um, are, are visiting fairs and stuff like that in Windsor um, part of your traditions down there? Do you make a point to, to visit many of them?
1: Not as many as I'd like, uh, or I'm proud to admit, because I, living next to Detroit, it's such a draw. I love Detroit with all my heart, and mm-hmm. it has such a good food scene, so I tend to land over there a little bit more if uh, if the budget allows for a night out.
0: Right on. Yes, Mexican Town is where we went whenever we went over there.
1: Ooh, good choice.
0: Speaking of Mexican food. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Danielle's here to talk with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, and also not that too, but chiefly we are actually going to talk about the novel this time. Often I have people t- sharing about all kinds of different things, but, um, you really love the novel, which I really love to hear. So you mentioned that you, you first kind of got into it when you were, you know, eight ish. What, um, yeah. can you recall any of like your first impressions of it at all? Pure terror. Yeah. I
1: remember, um, very clearly watching it for the first time in my childhood basement home. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Got the v- didn't go to the theater. We got the VHS a little bit later. And I distinctly remember watching it through an Afghan that my <laughs> grandmother <laughs> and just kind of like doing that thing where it's, it's safe because I'm behind. The yeah. And um, fast forward to I think it was last year. Yeah, it would have been last year. Um, my mom sent me a text basically saying like okay we're going through the house we're cleaning up some things and it felt wrong to throw this out without asking you first and it was a vhs copy of jurassic park because of a family joke it's not a joke though it's sadly so real is that um they hit it on me all the time because there were summers where i literally had it on loop like three times a day it was just on oh, wow. and wow. So- take it out, rewind, put it back in, here we go. And it they hit it. They, they thought they hit it. They, they hit it well enough to stop me for, like, an hour maybe, but I found it. <laughs> That's
0: awesome. We all did it, I think. We got infatuated with something and just played it to death. So what's – when you – how about with the novel? Obviously, you weren't, mm. I don't think, eight when you read the novel, so <laughs> – <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did you uh, enter into that for the first time around? Were you surprised? I guess being so familiar with the movie to find what the novel had in store instead?
1: I don't know that I was surprised. I came to it much, much later. Only a few years ago, actually. Um, probably, yeah, yeah, a couple years ago, I would say. And I wasn't so much surprised as I was um, enthralled at the expansion of like Ian Malcolm's Chaos theory. I also really loved the fact that Arnold played like a larger role in debunking it in a very logical, rational way. That makes (laughs) sense to have that blow up in his face within the next chapter. But I really appreciated like the narrative structure. I really loved the introduction and prologue and how they set the scene in a completely different way. And then there were so many things I hated about it too like the fact that Ellie Sattler's we'll call it runtime in the novel is 90% of it's like oh my gosh check out her legs but then her legs and oh, like I was taking notes about how I would a daddy talk about adaptation with my students and like some of the notes were like effing legs again period <laughs> like just everything was like ugh, and like she's a smart person still but she doesn't say anything she literally just, like, notes, oh, those bars weren't here before. Wow, that plant is poisonous and never says anything out loud. And it's just, like, you are so much cooler in the movie. Laura Dern is, like, it gave me a better appreciation for Laura Dern, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. But I really love both. They're so good. They, they tackle the things differently. And I I believe the movie is an improvement on the book or why it was changed. And I think that it was really well executed and obviously it stood the test of time. But I have a yeah, deep appreciation for the book so much so that I had my school buy a hundred copies so that I could share it with my I wondered
0: school. about that. That's crazy. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, what I liked about doing an English degree was that you could often find the classics for like, you know how like textbooks in, in school were were so insanely expensive. But, like, you could get the classics that you're going to be studying for, you know, five bucks somewhere.
1: And now you can get them
0: off of Amazon. Yeah.
1: (laughs) The word anthology was like, ah, crap. Here goes my wallet. Yeah.
0: But you could pick up Withering Heights for a dollar. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fat copy on discount. Yep. Penguin edition. (laughs) But yeah, no. Jurassic Park is such a good book. And, um, there are, oh, there, are so many things I could say about it. Do mm-hmm. we have a, do we have a place we want to land to start this, this, our conversation?
0: I have been tracking Ellie Sattler's depiction, and you're right. There's a tremendous amount about. It. Like it describes what her neck looks like and her legs look like, and what kind of shorts she's wearing. and her shirt's tied off at the midriff, which I guess Laura Dern did. In the, yeah, <laughs> she did that in the movie.
1: Great, let's a hottie, but <laughs> let's move on. Um, oh my God! Just thinking about it, the first line that Ian Malcolm says at her. Do you remember it? I could look I at your
0: remember. legs all day or something like that.
1: Like, you're incredibly, you're extremely attractive. I yeah. could stare at your legs all day. Pardon? Part? <laughs> no. Even by 1990s standards, no. Yeah, that's Not- it.
0: <laughs> And I think he was supposed to, I think there was supposed to be this idea that Dodgson's unknown accomplice, all we knew about him at that point was that his accomplice was arrogant and obnoxious. And then we go exactly. right into the next chapter where this one character comes out and you're right, right out right out of the, you know, through the door he comes in like Kramer being obnoxious <laughs> and, an, and arrogant. And so I think that there was supposed to be this really, really either super subtle or just like poorly fleshed out subterfuge that he, Malcolm was actually uh, Dodgson's <laughs> inside man. But...
1: Uh-huh. That's the thing. I like that idea for sure. How much of him being described as like a subversion to Hammond happens before that, though? Because, like, I always love that Hammond is responsible for bringing him here and just hates every second he has to spend with Mm -hmm. Malcolm, Mm -hmm. which is so much clearer in the book than it is in the movie. And I love, like, it's kind of terrible, but. I, I always encourage students to track Hammond as like if you if you want some low hanging fruit for changes and adaptation, mm-hmm. follow him. It'll be great. And just his excerpts, like oh balls. <laughs> like, yeah. <obsessed.
0: laughs> There's a couple times where uh, Attenborough yells into the in the film, and I yep. thought that he said balls at least one of those times, but I he I, I had to go back and check, and I think he just yells Grant, where he yells <laughs> damn but I thought he yelled balls and he didn't. And I was like, ah, that's a missed opportunity. I oh think.
1: yeah. It's yeah. It's like really British, hyper British in that moment. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Why do you think that they choose, uh, they, they selected a British John Hammond for, for the film when you, when you talk about adaptations?
1: That's a good question. Well, obviously just the draw of having an Attenborough mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. in and of itself, but he's such a Santa Claus in the movie. Um, <laughs> like literally bringing joy to children and I guess maybe there's just this this idea of this classic interpretation of you know the Santa Claus figure as a European person I suppose that might be a stretch but that's literally the first thing that just popped into my head Mm -hmm. so I always talk about him as a Santa Claus when we're talking about the the movie version of Hammond he's such a Santa and then they turn around and obviously like this cold capitalist. And some of the students are some of the students are pretty hardcore capitalists and are all about it. It's just trying to make money, Miss. Just trying to make money. I'm like, yeah, let's talk about that in grade twelve when we study Marxism and feminism. <laughs> I'll, I'll radicalize you yet. Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs>
0: all my socialist literature, yes. But- <laughs> Jurassic Park is socialist literature, of course. Yeah. There needs to be more regulations exactly. on, on uh, emerging technologies. There needs to be yep. less freedom in the corporate world so that you don't get monster dinosaurs eating people, because that's exactly. what you get. The behemoth exactly. ca-
1: that you get—it's just inevitable. If we follow chaos theory, it's just gonna happen. I wonder if there's a,
0: I wonder if there's a strong analogy for velociraptors being stock dividends or something like that, where you know you—they just you gotta get these dollars or else, and they just run around crazy all the time. I wonder. There
1: will be when we write it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Oh my gosh, it's so true though. And that's the one thing I always scare my students right out the gate because we read the introduction and the prologue first, obviously. And I warn them very much in advance. I'm like, the introduction is going to scare you away from this. Mm -hmm. The language very dry. It is very descriptive in terms of it's like it's like a bullet point list of genetic engineering and how it's emerging and different companies and how they're being, yeah, essentially, you, you know, where we're, where we're at with that. I'm like, this is not the story. This is not the story. And we talk about the narrative frame of like how why it's so unique, having both an introduction and a prologue, what kind of purpose a prologue serves and, um, so uh, within the first chapter, you can just see their eyes get so big, or the, sorry, the, with the introduction, their eyes get so big, and they're just like, "Miss, no, like what? What is this? I didn't get a sense, a sentence of it." Mm-hmm. So we go through the summary and like how to, how to summarize something effectively, and to basically demonstrate that we understand its meaning. And then with the prologue with Bobby Carter, it's like, okay, now this is the story. Miss that chapter was so much better, right? Yeah. It is. And don't worry, the rest of the book follows that. So there's comfort in narrative, right? Mm-hmm. They want so much story than read a list of nearing company names and like a little bit of suspense tickled in about, uh, oh, you know, the InGen incident. Mm, InGen incident. Because nobody, they, they don't know what InGen is. None of them do. So like someone like me who was like, oh, InGen incident. Yep, that makes sense. Well, they understand what the story is. Everybody knows what Jurassic Park the story is. You'd be living under a rock if you didn't. But to identify it as the InGen incident, and only that, it's, you know, they have no idea. Mm-hmm. And so getting into the story and meeting unfamiliar characters right away, and I, f- I find that the book is so much more in your face about how the park's a failure already, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they don't let you forget it. I find that the movie lets you forget it. Like, yeah, even while the dinosaurs are failing, you have Mr. Arnold bringing back the power, and he's largely successful until he isn't and then Ellie same thing she's successful everyone's just very successful when it comes to restoring power and restoring the island's you know um fundamental structure but the book never lets you forget it's it starts in the prologue and it does not end until even in the epilogue like there are trickles and hints everywhere about even just the car of what's how do you pronounce it but the fact that the fence shorted because they used metal cables instead of plastic coated cables and yeah. like every like every paragraph there's another reason that it's failing and it's just it's so hammered home and i really appreciate that about the book because it helps to teach theme like when i teach my students theme we talk about like i drill it into them where does theme happen everywhere beginning middle end setting character oh. plot, conflict everywhere it's like you put everything in a blender you get the theme that's what it is and it's the hardest thing to teach but then once you understand it the easiest thing to see everywhere and uh one thing Jurassic Park does really well the novel is definitely does not let you forget for one second that this was a foregone conclusion and then Malcolm's just there like told you
0: <laughs> hmm and the introduction's wonderful. I like to picture it as world-building, where you kind mm-hmm. of have... I made the analogy that it's like a the, that narrator's voice at the beginning of a movie trailer, where he's just laying out, you know, in yeah. a world where this is possible, sort of okay. thing. And so the introduction very- does that. And then and then I liked how it teases that, you know, 20 people were on this island, and only a handful survive. And that's very yeah. interesting to think, wow, there's like a serious massacre. Now, I... I, I st- I track the math and stuff like that. Like, there's easily over forty people on the island, at least. Yeah. But so I don't know where this number twenty comes up. But later on in the tour, they say, you know, we can run this due to automation um, with yes. only with a minimum of only twenty people. Now that would be prior to there being resort staff who would mm-hmm. be like turning down the beds and such. But other than that, yeah, they said they can run it with only twenty people. Though there's there's a there's easily forty people on the island, <laughs> unless you've yeah. got like. 20 super employees that are like cleaning up after the dinosaurs and cleaning them up after the storm and also doing security and and genetics. I mean, they're doing it all.
1: (laughs) I agree completely. And it's just so funny that obviously, like, yeah, we run everything automatically. And then you've got Nedry, because dinosaurs aren't the variable. Humans are the variable. You cannot control human behavior. Good luck. And so immediately, one of those minor, like, one of those 20 employees undoes the whole thing before he's even there. And actually one thing I like that the book did, I felt the book was better at identifying why Nedry was so upset. Mm -hmm. Like they go into basically how they gave him such limited information and such a major task. And now they're just sitting here, they have him coming along, not for the tour, but to fix everything. And they're just blaming him, blaming him, blaming him for every bug. I think there was like 130 bugs that he was supposed to fix before the weekend was out and uh, or he was supposed to he was there to fix but obviously he wasn't doing much of that in the movie it's such a throwaway line where it's like don't get cheap on me dodgson that was hammond's mistake and then later on he's like i don't ask people to pay or I don't blame people for their mistakes but I do ask that they pay for them and like Mm. what mistake are you referring to like there's there's no that's like I feel like that's like the movie's one failure is that it doesn't really flesh out why Dennis Nedry's got such a huge chip on his shoulder
0: yeah
1: be happier if they didn't have him and mention the mistakes because it's like if you just say he got cheap on me okay that's enough of an explanation but then now that you're mentioning these mistakes what mistakes I want to know about these mistakes Mm -hmm. like go into detail there and the book really does it does a much better job Mm -hmm. of highlighting the bugs that they're experiencing right away
0: and not just that they nedry's backstory firmly implies or or says straight out that if he didn't fix all of these mistakes that he wasn't like he was they changed the the specs on him right the scope of the project changed midway through but they said yeah, you can't charge us overtime for this. You're gonna have to do this by, by exactly. the the quote that you gave us. I'm, well, you changed this, change the scope of the project. The, it, the, what I bid for this doesn't match the job anymore. And then they exactly. were very clear about how they were gonna blackmail him and uh, ruin his reputation with all of his existing clients and stuff like that. And so the, his career was going nowhere if he d- wasn't forced to go and do this. So this was just him yeah. getting back, you know, getting what was his really. Do you oh, think, have... So here's the big question. Do you think Nedry would have gone back to work the next day had he stolen the, the embryo successfully and snuck back and the plan worked? Do you think he would have gone back to work? Do you think he would have fixed the bugs?
1: I think he would have done the most half-assed job <laughs> possible. Like, if you already think I'm a crap employee, great. Go ahead. Dog me. Drag my name through the mud. And I will... Be here just so you don't suspect me. However, your bugs are gonna like screw you and your bugs, kind of thing. Basically, the same thing he was doing that day anyway. Like, all he was like, I, what is it? Wu and Arnold are talking about how he was sitting here at this console. What was he doing the whole time? Like, when they go through his keystrokes, he was just surfing the net essentially, whatever the equivalent was in the 90s. Then he only pops into the code to turn off the security system using his back door. So, which I guess, yeah, that would still make sense for people who've only seen the movie, the The fact that he left the back door. It's just more heavily described in the novel that computer programmers tend to leave themselves away into the program mm-hmm. so that they can fix it remotely and easily without having to bur- burden the, the owners of the program, their clients.
0: Mm-hmm. So, you know, little cheat codes so they can get in there.
1: Exactly. White Rabbit Objects, which, whatever it is, it is at all. I love Samuel Jackson as Arnold so much. It's like perfect casting.
0: So in the book, d- d- is much mentioned when you were doing the studies that Ray Arnold in the book is John Arnold, and that for some reason in the control room, Crichton wrote two Johns in the same room in the same scenes all the time?
1: All the time. Like, they spend a lot of their time together, and I... I hated it. I hate it so much. Because one thing is that with the kid the kids got a little bit confused. They're like, miss, there are like twenty chapters named control. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, yes, yes. that all the chapter titles are doing are telling you where you are or whom you're with. So you know what you're you know where you are. Like, oh, okay. And so then you're in there and it's just John, 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 John in control. And it's just like, oh my gosh, no, just call him Arnold. I don't know. But I love how much more fleshed out. John Ray Arnold is <laughs> in the book for sure. Oh, but for the precious little time Samuel Jackson's on screen, he crushes it. So Yeah, he's Can't wonderful. Go.
0: He was great in that. Everybody was... I mean, the performances, I think, from left to right, the whole <clears throat> cast were really, really... Except for maybe Harding, the, the uh, veterinarian. He might have mailed it in, but everybody else is good.
1: What? Really? Oh, <laughs> huh, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> Diego Zoo and like the foremost expert on avian science and like oh look at that, pupils be diluted I could see that from here <laughs> I'm eight <laughs>
0: yeah he, he wasn't a very good veterinarian <laughs> if no. that was his job of all the people that like Nedry built a great system Arnold um, was in control, Wu cloned the dinosaurs, but Harding yes. wasn't a very good choice
1: <laughs> Harding was a <laughs> I also he's kind of fumbly in the book too Um, like not so much with just the you know the pharmacological issue but on top of that like when it's so clear that Arnold's trying to get them back so they can use the jeeves, like nah no he's always got a problem don't worry about that let's just go further into the park at night and just cruising around exactly and um, I actually really liked two um, thinking about that because obviously the whole thing is about Nedry having the jeep and having the I'm not sure what weapon it is but essentially the only weapon that's remotely capable of bringing down mm-hmm. a dinosaur.
0: the canisters and, of something yeah
1: yeah exactly um and the fact that there are so many almost like hey look at those lights ah, we will get to those later hey yeah. look there's the coffees are going this way. They usually find dead things. Let's see. Ah, we'll get to that later. So many, like, near Nedry moments.
0: And they and there's a couple other close uh, close calls, like, um, during the Stampede, they can't find Grant and the kids, even though they're by the yep. motion sensors and they, they would have liked to have been able to find them. I think at the stamp, it's after the Stampede where they tranquilized the Tyrannosaur. Mm-hmm. But, and the kids are like, they just left this place and they were on the river. Like, it was, yeah. it was all really close to one another at that time. And there's a couple of neat close calls and things like that. I thought that the electric waterfall, that when the power goes out, that the waterfall stopped was a little odd. That was one <laughs> of those... I'm not sure how you... I don't know. I don't know. Were they pumping the water to the top? Of, it made no sense. But...
1: Not sure at all either. It's like it makes sense in terms of the vanity projects that they were trying, like you know, hiding the fence with different types of trees and things that aren't mentioned. Like we're obviously in the movie, the fences are so prominent, and so yeah, water, an electric waterfall in theory makes sense, but how it's functioning in those moments, yeah, a no, little, little off.
0: <laughs> I just I've never heard of somebody pulling the plug somewhere and then a whole waterfall stopping. I just
1: stops. <laughs> That's a lot of energy. <laughs> it's,
0: it's, that's pumping ungodly amounts of water up out yeah. of the ocean, Covered I guess. Like, it's
1: <laughs> it's covering an entire ore from view. So, I don't know.
0: Do you think, but, so they built the lagoon. The gl- lagoon was something they constructed. They built, um, I forget how big they said it was. Maybe was it two miles long? It was supposed to be this narrow lagoon they built in the middle of the island. Yeah. Do you suppose it was fresh water or saltwater?
1: No, there's a there's a man-made lake, right? Yeah, I would have fresh water because the juvenile T-Rex is drinking from it, in one of the scenes.
0: Yeah, well, they, they had it stocked with I don't remember which fish they get put in there. That would be an indication I, of whether it was fresh water or salt water.
1: Yeah, it certainly would, but only yeah the only fact is that the one dinosaur, the Tyrannosaur, the the juvenile. Um, That does away with every just really (laughs) handling. I forgot how gruesome some of the depictions in the book were of death. And Mm -hmm. I I remember like stopping right before the Nedry chapter or the Nedry death and being like, oh, guys, I'm so sorry. Okay, uh, this is going to be bad. Here we go. Because it cuts away, right? Spielberg cuts away in the movie but the book is like he was holding his guts and then he felt the clamp around his face and the last thought was just like I hope it ends soon. It's like oh my god this is so visceral."
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) And then uh, Reed just had a pretty gruesome death too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I love some I like that uh, speaking of the deaths just thinking about things that were omitted from the book that they kind of pick up in the lost world the second movie just Mm -hmm. to kind of like a you know, respect to these specific, like Hammond's death is kind of a co-opted by, um, it was his name, Dierdrick, I'm pretty sure, like being attacked by the compies.
0: Something like that, yeah.
1: Yeah, and then Tina Bowman at the beginning being attacked by compies as well. So I like the little nods to the first book and the second movie.
0: I'm sure, were compies in the first movie?
1: Um, I don't think at all. I, I don't, don't think I.
0: Ever realize that that the compies are not in that first movie?
1: I don't think they are, and I don't think the stegosaurus is at all either. No, and the juvenile T. Rex, obviously. Mm-hmm. There, there are a lot of dinosaurs omitted. Yeah, like for sure they, and they focus only really on like the four main ones, like the Triceratops, because of that scene, the Apatosaurs, t Rex, and the Raptors. The rest are just kind of. Mm-hmm around more getting
0: stuck on the fence or something yeah they don't mention so staracosaurus <laughs> is supposed to be there and that would have been really cool mm-hmm. and the uh is supposed to be in there that would have been pretty neat to, to have on the island with or in the, mm-hmm. in the book i think they just called what them up? hadrosaurs Like, so it could have been any yep. ha- duck bill yeah and yeah, the
1: procompsonathids the myosaurs i'm trying to think i'm uh, all all that's flashing in my head oh yeah I'm sure so the
0: othnelia as as was as in as 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 there as and um
1: Oth- yeah, yeah exactly. hypsilophodons
0: <laughs> the lophosaurus of course
1: yeah Let's
0: and in the Pterosaurus.
1: the the tracking charts just flashing through my head trying to see if there're any were. but I, I always try to have my students guess what the flaw is i'm like okay guys there's a flaw in this graph there's a flaw in this chart like it's it's pretty obvious once you know what it is mm-hmm. but i want to know if you can predict it and some of their predictions are a lot of fun um, and one person came pretty close to determining that it's like, oh, well, if you set your expectations, you know, the 238, you're going to get 238.
0: Sorry. Uh, the graphing, <laughs> I think with the the charts and I think the way everything's set up. Oh, you got me thinking about so many things all at once. Uh, <laughs> but the charts and everything, there's um, a part in the beginning where they're looking at the Compi's X-ray and, and they talk about how an elaborate hoax is yes. looking to show you what you expect to see.
1: Honestly. Yeah. And then
0: and then literally all of the parameters that they their control mechanisms are designed to be efficient, so they remove like actual steps <laughs> and just and yep. so that it just shows you what you you know, I expect this many dinosaurs, uh go and find me this many dinosaurs and it goes and does that. Uh etc.
1: Yep. With the, the one bell curve, um where it's about the height and weight distribution of mm-hmm. the comp and it's just like and Mal calls it out immediately. It's like, No, it's too good. Like, what do you mean it's too good? It's a population of 50 dinosaurs. Like, it makes sense. No. In the world, yes, that would make sense. But you created these. You have versions. There should be, like, staggered steps or something or, mm-hmm. like, three different version codes, not one perfect iteration. Like, too good, move on. And so it's, it's exactly that. It's set up so quickly in the beginning about, like with the hoax, it was Ellie, right? I'm pretty sure Ellie was the one that, again, thought but didn't really say out loud because that's what book Ellie does, is think but not say out loud, that it just looked too good. And it's like, mm, could be, couldn't be, might not, but then they're immediately distracted by
0: mm-hmm.
1: Hammond's call, I think, for that one, right?
0: Yes. And then, you can and extrapolate stri- that idea that, um, that control, that idea of, mm-hmm. of control, that they had control of the island is the hoax. And I think there's an interesting, uh, it, again, Crichton's not overt with these, with these things, but it's obviously set up that way. And uh, it's very interesting. I, I think too, there's, there's moments where you can see where Hammond is, you no, know, not literally, but he's pulling the, the, the lid off of the canary cage, you know, to show yeah. everybody the, uh, his pig, uh, his little pachyderm, which is kind of neat. Uh, he had
1: he, everything, even the elephant, right? Mm-hmm. That was it, that the one that he showed all the investors. And even that, it's like, yeah, there's this cute little elephant. We're not gonna tell anybody that it does A, B, and C and kind of dies. And his only concern, and you even see it right away, he's such a villain. His only concern is that they won't be able to make another one before this one dies or before his head scientist dies. And it's just like that's your only concern. And it's so it's replayed several times throughout. Sorry, I'm jumping now. But my favorite <laughs> it's replayed is when Wu and John are in the bungalow and they just had a nice meal and you know they watched the legs of the woman who walked away because legs but um then he's like you know the park worries me and Wu's like it does <laughs> like yes he has a soul something good is about to <laughs> I'm just so worried that I'm going to die before I see children enjoy it it's like and he literally said I think word for word it's almost like well, there are other problems to consider, too. <laughs> it's just like, nope, it's the only one I'm worried about. I'm going to die before I see myself make oodles of money.
0: Now, I wondered, do you think Hammond was himself actually a rich person, or do you think he just was able to raise a lot of capital to make his dream come true?
1: Both. Uh, I think that he was someone who had experienced success, but didn't. he didn't self-fund the park after. And I don't know how much like they do mention the investors for sure. That's the whole reason Gennaro's out there trying to get people to come around. I feel like John's ownership of the park is more is like heavier in the movie where it's kind of like it's his thing, but in the in the book they really hammer it home. Like other than saying the one line where Gennaro's like, "Ah, oh, they'll shut, I'll shut you down, John. Mm-hmm. And of hours i'll be accepting your apology kind of thing it's like in the book it's made very clear that the law firm is just like no blow this island up if you spot a hair wrong on a tri- you know, triceratops head or whatever like we they they want it gone yeah. they're looking for reasons for it to die and so john's John's perception of his ownership of the park is very clear in the book, but the book makes it much more clear that he's just someone who had a really cool elephant (laughs) that was able to get Japanese investment.
0: on. Well, I think now that I think about it, he had the Hammond Foundation, and he obviously um, must have had enough wealth that he could put a foundation together and then pay people tens of thousands to... um, out of that exactly. so you're right he, he had he had wealth of some sort from somewhere although i i don't think we really get find out how or why but
1: no it's more like even the movie only alludes to the flea circus and like that's not going to be a huge money maker no. so we're like, so obviously he comes from humble means he's a self-built man but the park is largely funded by investors majority for mm-hmm. sure like even the law firm owns five percent general so And that's just the law firm that represents the investors. So Mm -hmm. it's like it's pretty, it's pretty uh, clear that they have the power to pull the plug, and that they want
0: to. I don't know to what end they would like. It would be interesting to see how they would have sold off the assets. Like I don't know, that would have been an interesting exercise to how do you get rid of these things. Like if if we're shutting it down, okay, you're closed now. You cannot.
1: I'm pretty sure he literally says like burn it to the ground, and I know that that's not taken literally even though literally that does happen but i that yeah they don't really allow for any other they're not like exploring any other opportunities there it's kind of just like left to the reader's imagination like mm. would it be a fallen kingdom <laughs> selling off the assets one by one but then he, not even just the animals obviously the animals would be executed or exterminated but like They had how many supercomputers, like three cray machines and how many gene hoods, which at the time were like so alarming that the EPA was questioning what they were being used for. I don't know. I think the book does a really good job of setting up and trickling suspense. I I wish I could have read the book before I watched the movie because it's just obviously eight-year-old me would not have appreciated it at all, but I wish I could have read it before I even knew that it was about dinosaurs. It's like, there's so many points where like, now imagine, if you didn't know this book was about creating dinosaurs, like this is the first time it happens. Mm-hmm. It's after 11 saying, oh, whose kid drew the dinosaur? And she's like, no, that's a dinosaur. Like, I love how I, she's low key, my favorite character in the book. And she's oh, she's not in the movie at all. And she's set up in the beginning. She's like, no, this this is clearly a dinosaur, guys. Like, you don't believe me fine i'm gonna prove it takes the picture and <laughs> runs to grant with it i think she's just a lab tech too she's not even anyone of major importance just some underling in a lab at a university that's just like nope yes couldn't call sense. <laughs>
0: alice levin yeah she's quite the muck wracker <laughs>
1: I, I liked her loved bobby carter too who's like low-key just like oh, this is the mauling a lot see, those are the those are the tributes attributes that i wanted in my ellie sattler Mm -hmm. sattler is the like she's got the biggest role in the book but the other women do a much better job of getting things started especially bobby carter and alice levin
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and of course making lex the younger whinier brattier
0: i think they needed i guess he had that in his head when he was writing it but i think how interesting would it have been for Tina Bowman to have been on the island running around with Tim instead of Lex? I think that would have been fascinating because Tina was curious and inquisitive and observant and wonderful. And she got bit, but she, she was tough, right? <laughs> Lex didn't get bit by anything. She... <laughs>
1: <laughs> she got bit real good. No, yeah. And she, even then she was still like when Marty Gutierrez was, you know, asking the parents and the parents. I love also that her parents went to bat for her too. Mm. Like, no, she's smart. She's cur- She's doing school projects on our trip to Costa Rica. She's like trying to identify different animals. She wants to experience the animals. She wonders why, Oh, maybe it's because it's a national park. They're probably not used to him. Like she goes for it. She's a cool kid. And Lex is so not a cool no. <laughs> kid. <laughs> poor traumatized kid. We actually had to talk about that a lot in class because like so clearly suffering immediately from post-traumatic stress yeah. and reverting back to an even younger version of herself. So you have to have a little bit of sympathy for her, but every time she came on the page, came up on the next page, all the kids were just like,
0: Ugh. <laughs> yeah. And that's how she, you know, she was the written cool. like that. Yeah.
1: yeah I, the movie I... shows cool though. They definitely yeah. improved the representation of women. Not perfect, but so much stronger in the movie than in the book. Mm -hmm, For mm. sure. Yeah.
0: I think there was... um, When they decided... When they started making movie sequels, I was just going over the introduction of Tim Murphy. And I think think the real natural progression would have been to have the sequels focus on him as a paleontologist in the future. And I think it would have been fascinating because he's already got this sort of traumatized... Well... Before he gets to the island, he's already got, like, this father figure that he doesn't relate to, which is, like, the essential to building a character, uh, Is you have issues with your parents. He's a computer whiz, so he's already a step ahead of what Grant can do. He is already the dinosaur uh, expert, and I think you're going to take, like, all these power, like, the superpowers, the the things that were missing in Grant's character... uh, and the things that I guess were lacking, like, he's, like this, he's got all the great skills and he was just too little. And I think him as like this traumatized, affected, dinosaur-attacked, uh, wizened paleontologist in the future would have been fascinating. To have him exploring Isla Sorna or, or something like that. And, and the, I think Tim is a really cool character.
1: Well, you know, let's not write that out completely. Maybe this happens. <laughs> <laughs> I could. I don't think, I, canonically speaking, I think that the last time we see Tim is in The Lost World at his grandpa's like, house basically saying, yep, grandpa's dying, mm-hmm. and that that's it for them. I, I had a thought while you were talking about it, and I hated the thought. I wonder if someone had a somewhat similar idea, and in Jurassic Park 3, you know, that's, Assistant that like steals the raptor eggs and has mm-hmm. the three D that makes the vocal cords and all that jazz. I wonder if that's like a little would have been a Tim character as an older person. <laughs> He's such it's such a bad movie, but <laughs> it's a great B movie. That's the one thing I'll say about Jurassic Park Three yeah. is it's an amazing B movie. It's not a it's not a blockbuster. <laughs>
0: it's um. It's amazing how grant really so with ellie grant and she are peers like they he's not he is professor to student relationship but he doesn't treat her like that at no point is is there like that um
1: dichotomy dynamic yeah
0: they're they're always kind of equals and i think it's the same with tim as well that he you know you know dinosaurs all right you and me we're the same (laughs) as opposed to um you know if you don't like Gennaro. he doesn't he's not the same as Gennaro. he's He's a hero oh. above Gennaro. Gennaro is slime to him. <laughs> Although Gennaro does a lot of really heroic stuff. I've, I
1: think in the book, book Gennaro is much, much cooler.
0: <laughs> he does. He is probably one of the most round story arcs and backstory and everything that happens. Like He is one of the most fulfilling characters in the novel uh, that gets disregarded. Yeah. yeah,
1: he's like... He, he's forced to take responsibility in some ways or very strongly encouraged to take responsibility, but to his credit, he really does. Mm-hmm. It, uh, definitely one of the more interesting characters to follow in the book to its natural, his, his conclusion where he lives and survives the dinosaurs essentially. Mm-hmm. But I absolutely appreciate Donald Gennaro as like a complete character for sure. But the most iconic death scene of like the (laughs) nineties. Gotta sacrifice a well-rounded character here and there, I guess. But it was I definitely appreciate that of the movie, uh, of the book story. And I definitely appreciate the fact that I don't know, like Grant Grant is less developed in the book. But it lends itself to more opportunities for like, like you said, Tim to shine. Mm. And I, I hesitate to say for Ellie to shine, Ellie shines so much brighter in the movie. But Tim certainly plays a much stronger role in the novel. And I think that that's just because immediately Grant recognizes his love and his and he it flat out says he loves kids. Kids are so curious about dinosaurs. Why wouldn't I love? So you're stealing like a character moment from Grant from the movie, but you're giving so much more to Tim. And uh, no, Tim's fun to follow, especially like even just his relationship with the dinosaurs at the beginning with the baby raptor and everything like that. And he still has a love of dinosaurs and he's still able to appreciate everything as he leaves. So, lot a lot more opportunity to round out characters that are important. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Narrow and Tim are important in the book, but neither really accomplishes anything that their removal would change the story drastically. Right? Like, if there was just the threat of the lawyers,
0: but <laughs> that's there, true. Yeah, he's kind of leading the uh, the 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 investigation but you're right in and of yeah. itself he doesn't um
1: he doesn't necessarily need to be there he could have just been like all right let me know what you guys think at the end of the week yeah even in the book that's more he has a much more competent spiel where he's like we're here to answer two questions i need you to answer me these two questions by the end of the weekend and he doesn't cut corners around it he doesn't try to put a bow on it he's literally like is the park safe is the... and what control measures are being used and that's it here we go let's figure it out mm-hmm much more practical
0: and by and that measure malcolm doesn't practically do much either he just kind of is like this is all going bad it's in my report i submitted it years ago uh, i brought it again <laughs> you can read it some more if you want and uh and he's just there to watch it burn he's ready to he's like it's gonna fail and um i'm here for it I'm, i can't wait to see you, you go down the drain here and,
1: and i love that who's it i think it is Gennaro that calls him out what isn't predicted in your report yeah. Like that's the whole point. My report predicts everything because you guys haven't thought of everything, and you couldn't possibly think of everything. That's Mm -hmm. the whole point. And I love—he's kind—he's not snide, but just so sure that it almost comes off as snide. And Mm -hmm. you can—it too, because we're in the know. We know it's going to fail. We're told at the beginning. Even if you knew nothing, the introduction told you this is going to fail. And so we get to be kind of snide with him. Like, well, this guy's right, so maybe I'll just align with him over here instead of over there with the people that are trying to control dinosaurs. And uh, then he, he gets some of the best lines both in the movie and the book, obviously. And I think the book just expands on them more and talking about, you know, the nature of chaos theory and about the natural order of the world and the, you know, what you call discovery um, everything is just so well written, and thank God Michael Crichton was also the screen like wrote the screenplay as well mm. because it holds right It's just when you watch a bad movie and then when you watch Jurassic Park, you know, appreciate appreciated all the more for how good the writing is. What did I rewatch recently um <laughs> I rewatched the movie. Did you watch Taken? Liam Neeson's Taken?
0: I'm aware of it. I don't think I might have seen it. I don't recall it very well.
1: Like action-adventure, right? So essentially action-adventure. And the writing was just so laughably bad at some points that just thinking about how the conversations between grant and malcolm or arnold and Gennaro explaining malcolm's theory i love like i I already mentioned it earlier in our conversation but i love that arnold gets you to think about it where it's just like oh maybe it's like because they asked him what did you do with the theory right Mm -hmm. what did you do with malcolm's theory we ignored it of course we ignored it why wouldn't we able to see like we're dealing with a living system they have to be unstable that's how we adapt to everything he he his theory is right and life will go on like it's just it is what it is and he puts forth such a strong argument that you're kind of on his side for a second until you realize like narratively speaking they're talking about the malcolm effect just as things look better and i ask my students like okay so we're we're seeing the park come back online and they're talking about how the Malcolm effect predicts sudden collapse. What are we? What are we being told here? And obviously, mm-hmm. well, foreshadowing. This is it's all going to collapse. Look how much book is left. <laughs> like, yep, absolutely. So Arnold is smart and wrong.
0: There's he a able... there's a wonderful line towards the end where he's like, "Do you have any idea how unlikely it is that any of us are going to make it off this island alive?" To wrap up one of the like a, a chapter, and then there's another one where they find out all oh, the fences are down. And then just you hear glass breaking and screams (laughs) in the distance. He's like, oh, oh, the raptors are (laughs) out. And (laughs) And yeah, Malcolm was so... Thank God he was there because he's just amazing. And he was written so well.
1: Despite his introduction.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think it was fascinating that they left kind of like it open-ended in a way that, you know, when the beginning, the introduction talks about this new world, and we don't know what to expect. Like, we're entering into a new age. And then you have that early chapter called Almost Paradise. Yes. And then that is obviously alluded to when it comes to almost paradigm at the end, in that final chapter. <laughs> yeah. And then Malcolm has the line about, you know, paradigm shifts. The other side is like death. You don't know what it's like on the other side till you get there. And so this whole idea that you could predict or prepare for something completely awesome. unknown is is there's no order to it. You can't make sh- you cannot be ready for it. And I think that maybe that's why Jurassic Park was doomed to fail. You know, you get this whole new thing and you don't know what it's going to be, and of course it's going to fail. Just this idea that it's open-ended. We are in a world where cloning happened, the dinosaurs are loose in the in the real world at the end they're still finding animals that are kind of scurrying around on the on the mainland. And it's kind of just left open-ended cuz cuz Malcolm's obviously been drugged up to, for his injuries and he's fading away he can't even finish his thought at that point and it's just like this this unknown world that we're gonna you know now that we've passed through this window what is it gonna be like when we get there let's all see I suppose and that's kind of how it ends
1: it's, that's a yeah and I love that ending too and I love the fact that it does leave it open-ended even whether or not he lives or dies feels open-ended until he's like brought into the lost world a few years later but I fully appreciate also kind of bringing us back into the middle of the book. It ends so beautifully along with that ticking clock element that drives us forward, mm-hmm. the boat arriving the mainland. It's like, it doesn't matter. They're already there. <laughs> like yeah. already proven that the dinosaurs are on the mainland. So I'm glad that there aren't raptors there, but uh, like, like, it was, it's already done too little, too late. And that's kind of a very cynical outlook, but Malcolm's a cynic. So in the, in the most practical sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It. Well, have your students surprised you with anything? Did anything jump out when they stop and they look at it and you get all these new ideas and new perspectives? Did, did they come back with answers that, that, uh, or insights that, that surprise you when, when you hear from them?
1: No, um, not so much with, like, anything that I hadn't thought of or heard of or been, a, um, you know, it's been a part of my life for a really long time. <laughs> but they, uh, they, their appreciation or sometimes their unappreciation of it, like, some obviously, you're not going to please everyone when you introduce a story, especially for grade nine. I have to assure them that some, like, we might not read the whole thing, like, because it's beefy. So sorry, I'm going to decline a call here. Uh, Pretty beefy. And obviously, um, it can be intimidating, even just alone. Uh, So once I tell them like, no, we have a purpose in addressing this novel. And so talking about it from an adaptation standpoint, it's pretty cut and dry in a lot of ways. But seeing them react to it is what surprises me. Sometimes kids that I thought would love it didn't. Sometimes kids that I thought would be indifferent were all about it and devouring it. And just you get back what you give to them. And so when I come at it with a lot of excitement and if I come at it with a hatred for the depiction of Ellie and her legs or this you kind of see that reflected back and you get to shape you get to shape their understanding of the text to some degree. And so the fact that I love it and the fact that I have passion for it definitely helps them to understand why talking about film adaptation is important, why it is something to consider, why we should appreciate film and story, because even if we look back, like past audiovisual past, you know, printing, but story is just such an inherent part of humanity. Mm -hmm. And showing your appreciation for anyone in particular helps them to understand why it's an important and not just a frivolous one what they bring to it surprises me not so much in content but in reflection of passion
0: right on that's a good answer (laughs) well our time's almost up here would um i know there's so much more that we have not got to (laughs) yeah would you like to come back and do this again sometime
1: sure that would be great i would love to uh i would love to keep this going i love this conversation it's been a lot of fun
0: what, uh, what's your favorite part of the book that uh, if you could pick a, a part to go back to, what would you be?
1: I love when Malcolm is just like, Bull <laughs> is wrong. I lo- is like, wrong. We've already mentioned it once mm-hmm. before, but I just love that part so much. And I also just love getting so angry at Ellie for not speaking up. It's like, oh, wow, that plant is poisonous. Better not say anything about it. Oh, wow, there are bars on the skylight. Hmm, must be a reason for that. And mm-hmm. just... Just getting angry at it for those reasons. I also hate that the user is bait. Yes, it's voluntary, but come on, really, the <laughs> female act like representation is the bait. So yeah, I I love the book and I hate it, and I love it and I hate it.
0: <laughs> Speaking of using elliot's bait, we didn't even get into Muldoon, and he's a lot of fun too.
1: Oh, Muldoon, yeah. <laughs>
0: man.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we've got plenty to talk about.
0: All right. Well, I can't wait to have you back. We'll do a whole Maldoon thing. That'll be a good time. (laughs)
1: I'll like pull out my wide broom fedora for that
0: one or something. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for for joining me. All right. What a fun interview that was. Uh, Really cool. This week's text is the tour part two as we continue extrapolating and exfoliating all the details out of this massive, consequential, dense chapter Spanning from pages 92 to 111. Uh, The characters that we're going to cover, resuming from our review of the characters of last week's episode, this time we're going to get to Gennaro, Hammond, Tim Murphy, and Lex Murphy. Starting with Donald Gennaro, Gennaro is described as younger and red-faced compared to Hammond by Tim. This is because he's furious with Hammond, and Gennaro must be really giving it to Hammond because the rest of the adults, quote, look embarrassed and uncomfortable, which is really saying something. Tim feels like Gennaro is muscular. On page 93, Gennaro is furious that Hammond invited his grandkids on the safety inspection and whispers to him, I could kill you for this. A lawyer who utters death threats, he's almost uncontainably angry right now. And later on in the tour, when the baby raptor leaps into Tim's arms and its head is only inches from Tim's face, Gennaro is concerned the boy may be in harm's way, but Wu says that he is not. On page 108, John Hammond. Hammond kisses both the kids upon their arrival. On page 93, and what he wants, he gets to the displeasure of Ed Regis and Donald Gennaro. So, and that's all we really get from Hammond in this chapter. He sends them on their way with the tour, and then he, I guess he waddles off and does whatever John Hammond does. Tim Murphy. Tim is 11, wears glasses, and is observant. He can tell something's wrong, that their presence has disrupted this group on page 92. Tim pushes his sister to join them despite the tension, and Lex calls him Timmy on page 93. And he calls her a worm During introductions, he remembers Gennaro's name, probably because this is the man who is upset with his grandfather, and the rest are a blur to him, but Sattler's legs make an impression, so much so that he stares at them to a degree. But then he realizes that he knows who Grant is. His sister teases him for staring, but Tim has dinosaurs on the brain, according to Lex, which he takes from her father. Tim tunes her out, probably a coping mechanism he's had lots of practice with. Grant identifies with Tim right away. Tim is one of our heroes. He's a dinosaur specialist, a survivor, and he gets a nominal backstory to help us really connect and sympathize with him. His parents are splitting up, nobody understands him, his bratty little sister embodies and parrots all the things his father doesn't respect about Tim. And he feels like he doesn't belong in this group of consultants and can tell that they don't want him and his sister there on the tour. If you've ever felt like a, like a misunderstood outsider, you felt like Tim. He's been interested in dinosaurs for, quote, a while now, and he's nervous to speak with Dr. Grant. He admits he only gets it to a museum if he can talk his father into it, on page 94. When talking to his dad about dinosaurs, he seems to get embarrassed that his dad doesn't know the first thing about the animals, and is a bit impatient with him. In a flashback visiting the American Museum of Natural History, Tim retells his observations on the Tyrannosaurus Mount AMNH 5027, which we discuss in episode 16, Malcolm with paleontology and tyrannosaurus specialist Dr. David Hone, They look at the tyrannosaurus in this flashback, and then they leave so they can watch the rest of the Mets baseball game to Tim's great disappointment on page 95. Tim's perhaps equally disappointed in his father, as his father is disappointed in him. In any case, disappointing Tim and going off to do what Lex and Dad want to do is described as just how things happened in his family on page 95 or used to be. Now things are changing with his parents' divorce, and Tim likes that his father has moved out, even though it was weird at first. Tim is especially precocious if he knows what teratogenic substances are, because that stuff is seriously dangerous, and I'd never heard of it, and I've read this book a bunch of times. (laughs) Tim might be a little freaky, guys. In the Extractions Lab, Tim thinks Grant looks skeptical and Nedry looked uninterested, as if he knew all of this stuff already, and was more interested in the next room on page 100, which Nedry was. So Tim continues to prove that he is very observant. And it reminds us of Tina uh, earlier, where she was also very observant. And I think we'll get a line from Grant about how kids um, have visual acuity that uh, that adults have forgotten that they have. So kids can see stuff. Uh, Tim likes technical things, but on this tour, he was hoping to see dinosaurs and was becoming impatient, and perhaps we as readers are too. In the fertilization room, Tim spots the virulent poisons like helotoxins, colchinoids, and beta-alkaloids, and would like to hear more about them, but woo drones on and on, on page 105. Tim knows and corrects, Dr. Wu, that there are 347 known species of dinosaurs so far on page 107. And the little raptor is friendly with Tim on page 109, rubbing its head against his neck. And she wants Tim to feed her, but Wu doesn't let him. After Grant's examination, Tim gets the animal back and helps bring its heart rate down, perhaps saving its life from adrenocortically-mediated postnatal stress syndrome. And Tim forms a genuine connection with this raptor and hopes that he can stay with her in the nursery, but of, of course, no, he can't. Lex. She is introduced as Alexis uh, at the first blush, but just Lex for most of the rest of the time. And she too can see that Hammond is being yelled at by Gennaro, and she's uncomfortable about it. She tosses her baseball in the air to beat the tension. She's pushed by Tim to join the group, which she doesn't like, and they argue. And after he insults her, she glares at him, and she has to go to the washroom But when things get exciting, she can hold it, which I guess helps characterize her as a little bratty kid. And she teases Tim for staring with his mouth open. And now that we have kids in this novel, we also get sarcasm. Just great. Which, as it was a staple technique for expressing myself for about 25 years to the chagrin of everyone who knows me, I can say uh, sarcasm does not make this novel better. Lex and Tim feud over almost every word they say to each other. And when she feels pestered, she calls him Timothy. On page 94 and she copies her mother's irritating stance. She's been heartbroken with their parents' divorce, especially with being separated from her father, on page 95 we're told. She doesn't know her mother has a new boyfriend, and the divorce has made her act more obnoxious than normal. We have Mr. Murphy. Tim and Lex's dad, Mr. Murphy, seems a bit domineering, or at least from Tim's perspective, domineering. He has to be convinced to go to the museum, He doesn't know much about dinosaurs, but that's nothing to hold against him, I guess, and it just shows that his interests are entirely separate from Tim's interests. But he questions Tim's knowledge as well, double-checking with a guard that there are too many tail vertebrae in the Tyrannosaurus skeletal mount on page 95. And then he concedes that Tim's amazing at dinosaurs and shows his affection through, I guess, a squeeze on his shoulder on page 95. It's kind of like a sort of a jock thing to do, perhaps. And that said, this might be just you know, to butter Tim up, to leave the museum and go catch the game later. So there's this feeling like Mr. Murphy worries that his son will grow up to be a nerd, That is, that being a jock is something that he either A, would prefer, or B, could better relate to as a father, and if Tim grows up to be a nerd, he just doesn't know what to do with him. He'll feel like he succeeded, or is succeeding, with Lex, who also loves Mets baseball, though. And as a result of the impending divorce, he's already moved out of their home. Mrs. Murphy. Lex imitates Mrs. Murphy when she's being bossy. And she probably has a new boyfriend now that she's splitting up with Mr. Murphy. And says that Hammond's Island is just a resort with swimming and tennis on page 96. And she doesn't know about the dinosaurs yet. Localities. In terms of localities, we're only focusing on the foot of the mountain and the Visitor Center in today's episode. At the foot of the mountain, the chapter begins there, uh, where the kids have descended from the helicopter landing pad. Tim's point of view is them approaching the group at the bottom of the path, and then they stroll as a group towards the Visitor Center. In the Visitor Center, there must be a washroom on the first floor, outside of which they wait for Ellie Sadler before they can begin their tour, which commences on the second floor. They climb a black, suspended staircase to the second floor. So that's a visitor center. Remember what it looks like. (laughs) Illusions and references. We have Robert Bacher and the dinosaur heresies. Tim recalls that he knows of Dr. Grant and recalls that he's, quote, one of the principal advocates of the theory that dinosaurs were warm-blooded. And he, quote, was also a good illustrator. And he drew the pictures for his own books on page 93. This, I believe, is a reference to Robert Bacher and his groundbreaking book The Dinosaur Heresies from 1986 that made a variety of convincing arguments that dinosaurs were warm-blooded, and I believe that Bakker illustrated the book himself, too. There's a ubiquitous early drawing of Deinonychus that Bakker appears to have drawn back in 1969, and he worked closely with John Ostrom, who described Deinonychus uh, in that paper in that year as well, which was a seminal moment in the warm-blooded debate that a velociraptor-like creature, like a Deinonychus, called Dromaeosaurus, wouldn't possibly have behaved like the sluggish, tail-dragging dullards as dinosaurs had previously been believed to have done, dooming them to extinction. Jack Horner and Mayasauri nesting habits. Likewise, Tim also recalls that Dr. Grant had done, quote, lots of digging at a place called Egg Hill in Montana, which was famous because so many dinosaur eggs had been found there. Professor Grant had found most of the dinosaur eggs that have ever been discovered, we're told on page 93. This again, as mentioned in episode 8, The Shore of the Inland Sea, uh, Jack Horner is also from Montana State University, just like Grant, where he's published on Hedrosaurs and Myasaua that were uncovered from the two-medicine formation of Montana. In that two-medicine formation... There's a locality not called Egg Hill, but actually Egg Mountain, which is near Chateau, Montana, where juvenile dinosaurs and a colonial nesting site was uncovered, becoming famous for the fossilized myasaua eggs, proving for the first time that dinosaurs cared for their young. So you can see that Grant is this strange combination of both Bacher and Horner, which is all the more awkward, as Paleo Joe Cotto (laughs) reported in Episode 6, New York, that those two paleontologists famously hate each other. Henry Fairfield Osborne's 1917 publication, Skeletal Adaptations of Ornitholestes struthiomimus Tyrannosaurus. Crichton doesn't overtly suggest this, but I believe he specifically lifts quite a few specific details about Tyrannosaurus from Osborne's paper, including Timmy's description of Tyrannosaurus and the quantity of tail vertebrae. I discussed this more in episode 16, Malcolm, with Dr. David Hone, and I think I went him over on on this relationship between Crichton and the paper. But the other likelihood is that Crichton didn't read that paper, but instead visited the museum, and perhaps there was a display featuring details from Osborne's publication, and so he just read that while browsing through the museum, but I haven't the means to visit the AMNH in the late 1980s to see what their display say to my chagrin. And I'll talk about Tyrannosaurus, I guess, later on in the discussion section. With some literary techniques, like metaphors, dinosaurs on the brain. Uh, gives us the impression that this is a constant, uninterrupting consideration in Tim's life. That he's always thinking about dinosaurs, and as a result, knows a lot about dinosaurs too. Similes, you watch my kids like a hawk says Hammond to Regis, transferring the qualities of a hawk's sense of vision, which is extraordinary, they have the ability to detect prey miles away, to Hammond's desired efforts from Regis, that he too should use extraordinary visual resources to oversee the safety of Hammond's grandkids. And we'll rate this as a good simile, which is why it's probably become a common turn of phrase. As big as the Manhattan Project, which made the atomic bomb, on page 104. So how big is something that's as big as the Manhattan Project? Well, the Manhattan Project lasted four years, was a multinational endeavor between the U.S., the U.K., and Canada. It grew to employ 130,000 people and cost nearly 2 billion U.S. dollars in 1939, which Wikipedia says is approximately 23 billion dollars in 2020 dollars. And research and production occurred at more than 30 sites across those three nations. So, like by a variety of measures, that's comparatively big. Motifs, responsibility, and safety. A variety of times on the tour, we're told that special precautions are in place to ensure the dinosaurs are being controlled and contained safely. When entering the genetics lab, there are severe cautionary signs that warn about the dangers of toxins inside, but Regis assures everyone that they are just posted for legal reasons and that, quote, everything is perfectly safe, on page 98. Another concern that they're not being responsible is their methods by which they determine which animals they've extracted the DNA of. Wu says they either use phylogenetic mapping, looking at the DNA's place in evolutionary history, and determine roughly by computer where the sample fits in the evolutionary sequence, or they just, quote, grow it and find out what it is on page 105. It appears that the phylogenetic mapping is too time-consuming, so they don't bother with that, which is irresponsible. Just growing it to see what it is, when it could be like a 100-ton sauropod, which you need to, you know, house and feed, or a 6-ton theropod you need to contain and feed, like, these things come with significant responsibilities. Anyone who's done, you know, family planning knows that you want the nursery, diapers, the feeding schedule, etc. ready before you have the baby. Imagine if you don't even know what the species of the baby will be and how that affects how you plan for that nursery, those diapers, and the feeding schedule. That's just crazy. So that's another example of them just not quite being responsible. Uh, the illusion of control. Finally, almost 100 pages in, we reach the control room and Crichton's motif of the illusion of control begins to take shape. Again, like we do with the ecological criticism, let's, I guess, catalog the control mechanisms in place and see how each is systematically discredited and plays a role in the downfall of Jurassic Park. To begin with, a total of only 20 personnel can control Jurassic Park due to an adoption of automation on page 98, we're told. And this number references the introduction, where we're told during the InGen incident there were, quote, fewer than 20 people on a remote island off the west coast of Costa Rica. Crichton remains consistent in that messaging, though I don't think it turns out to be accurate. But uh, I, like we might even get 20 people in this chapter alone, though not referenced specifically. The computer also automates selecting which enzymes to replace in a DNA extraction that is to that is incomplete or fragmented. The geneticists don't make this selection; the computer does to save a lot of time. And Wu specifically says, "Quote: Ordinarily, we let the computers decide which to use." On page 101. The uh, repairing of fragmented strands without this automation would take, quote, months in a conventional lab, but Jurassic Park can do it in seconds, we're told. Further along the safety and control motif, we we finally get to the moment when we discuss the gender of all the animals. Grant inquires about breeding in the wild, and Wu says they fixed that problem, which is, like, almost a pun intended as a joke. They fixed it. As in, (laughs) I guess they could have fixed the dinosaurs before they put them in the park, but instead they tried to do some advanced chemistry to regulate their genders and relied upon radiation. Nonetheless, here we go. Quote, None of our animals is capable of breeding. That's why we have this nursery. It's the only play- way to replace stock in Jurassic Park, says Will on page 108. They designed redundancy systems, arranging at least two control procedures to prevent unauthorized births at Jurassic Park. One They're sterilized by irradiating the gonads with x-rays. And second, they're all female, on page 108. Uh, We can kind of discuss a couple other fun ideas here. We have a section here called The Child of the 80s. Tim recognizes Dr. Grant as the author of his dinosaur book, probably from the book's cover jacket, where the author's headshot would be. I think it's very interesting to compare this to, to how you or I would recognize a famous paleontologist. Should we see a paleo superstar out in public, it's certainly because they've been featured in science outreach programming or science communications programming or in National Geographic or Time magazine or dinosaur documentaries of which there are plenty and by which many become celebrities. But Tim doesn't recognize Dr. Grant from these now common hype machines. It's from his book. And rightly, this is because dinosaur documentaries were far less common pre-Jurassic Park. This is truly Another indicator that dinosaurs genuinely moved from some obscure area in our collective conscious and into a phenomenal new age of awareness. Perhaps Jurassic Park hit at just the right time, when dinosaur deductions were shedding off the sluggish, unfit-to-survive extinction perspective, and new discoveries were invigorating speculation when special effects in film were taking extraordinary strides, when blockbusters and movie-going were phasing into the, if not exciting, at least strongly stimulating cinematic age of Mel Gibson and Tom Cruise and Arnold Schwarzenegger, as they exploded everything until the credits roll. And perhaps, as a result, these factors combined to birth a new reality where dinosaurs were far more in demand than they'd been. And now, famous faces from the documentaries make some paleontologists world-renowned. But Crichton didn't live in a dinosaur documentary age, he came from the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Age of the Lost World, which was done in 1925, and King Kong from 1933, One Million Years B.C. from 1940, and The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms in 1953. We also have The Valley of Guanji in 1969, and When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth in 1970, and one of my favorites, although I cannot find it wherever it may be, Baby, The Secret of the Lost Legend, 1985. These were the, the films that, that Crichton had uh, as a reference to, to what you know animated dinosaurs looked like versus what we got post-Jurassic Park. And compared to the movie, Tim meets Dr. Grant in this chapter, and this is similar to him meeting him in the film. In the novel, he recognizes him because he has the book. In the film, he's literally carrying the book with him, and he's really pestering Grant as they're jostling around to see who rides at which land cruisers, which also illustrates another major difference, that the kids don't meet the consultants until after the tour, whereas Tim and Lex join them uh, before beginning the tour in the novel. Plus, Novel Grant likes kids, and says so in this chapter, whereas film Grant doesn't like kids. Yet. Her father's daughter, Tim, has, quote, dinosaurs on the brain, according to Lex. This is written as a pejorative, something that doesn't hold any meaning or value in the Murphy household. Lex and her father both tell Tim that he has, quote, dinosaurs on the brain, but they don't mean it in a constructive or supportive tone. Supporting this derisive and demeaning interpretation of dinosaurs on the brain, Lex is sure to add, Dad says dinosaurs are really stupid that is sad. Lex adds he says Tim should get out in the air and play more sports knowing that his dad is a Mets baseball fan and in fact tears him away from the museum so they can go catch the rest of the ball game. All of this is clearly belittling Tim's not just interests but like his passion is joie de vivre and that's pretty dark and Lex embodies her father's disappointment and apes her father wearing a Mets baseball cap carrying a baseball and a glove using the same pejoratives on Tim as her father does. This is a dark and sad reality for Tim, especially one where his parents are already splitting up. Tim's standing before his hero, and the specter of his father emitting from Lex continues to belittle and embarrass him. And I can only read the sentence, I thought you had to go, like to the washroom, as weakly uttered in pain as opposed to the combative jousting comment common with siblings. That's how I'd write it anyhow. It's no wonder Tim is drawn to Dr. Grant. And it's lucky for him, Grant is a role model. Lex also copies her mother's most irritating stance when scolding Tim, too. So we get a bit of a peek as to how this kid was raised up just by looking at how Lex treats him. Dinosaurs. Tyrannosaurus is described a bit, again, skeletally, similar to how we were introduced to the velociraptors earlier through a paleontological discussion with a lens for academia on page 94. This time, Tim and Grant are discussing one of the most visibly famous Tyrannosaurus skeletons in the world from the American Museum of Natural History, specimen AMNH 5027, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast now. Tim is demonstrated to be a wunderkind, who, by having memorized the number of vertebrae in a Tyrannosaurus's tail, called caudal vertebrae, and then noticing that this particular mount doesn't have a, the correct number, which is false. The exact number of vertebrae in the tail of almost any fossilized animal is dubiously accurate at best, because not all the tail vertebrae fossilize, what with them being very fragile and easily disarticulated from the rest of the specimen. The exact length of a Tyrannosaurus tail is indeterminate for this reason, and so this is a contrivance of Crichton's, and I've made the argument that he specifically read a particular article in Tyrannosaurus, that one I mentioned before by Henry Fairfield Osborne. In that paper, he wrote on page 47, in plate 27, if you want to look it up, there are, in fact, 37 caudal vertebrae, which is the specific quantity that is mentioned in, in Crichton's book here. And he says, quote, I think they're wrong. Tyrannosaurus should only have 37 vertebrae in the tail. This has more, Tim says on page 95. And attesting to the bird-like qualities of, of birds, Wu says that they have nuclei in their red cells, just like birds. And this indicates that dinosaurs aren't reptiles at all, but instead big, leathery birds on page 100. That's a neat dinosaur detail they've included. Uh, we've got two characters who are described in this chapter as having very serious condition, having dinosaurs on the brain. And that's Dr. Grand and Tim. They are our proxy for everything there is to know about dinosaurs. At no point do we, nor should we, question their observations for the sake of the novel. If they say something about a dinosaur, that's how dinosaurs work for the purposes of this novel. Anything that they say that is incorrect, or at least known to be incorrect, is therefore an error of the author, not the characters. And I believe that is the way we need to read this. That said, on page 107, Dr. Henry Wu says, They are cooking up a batch of extracted DNA that is marked presumed Sulu. So it's likely to be a Salurosaurus, uh, and this might be presumed due to the genetic testing of the DNA and the phylogenetic mapping. Wu says that they do on page 105, and then he further elaborates a small herbivore, if I remember. Salurosaurus is problematic because, in this specific name, there is no such thing. Either this is the herbivorous Colisaurus an ornithomimid, which was discovered in 1868 and named in part by Jack Horner in 1979. Hey, there's Jack Horner, maybe Crichton read more than one of his papers. To be reclassified as an ornithomimus, which is similar to the gallimimus from the Jurassic Park film that you would know. Or it's a salurosaur, which is an entirely different species of theropod and was definitively carnivorous. In any case, for the dinosaur experts Tim and Dr. Grant... To not correct Dr. Wu here, especially as he's already correcting Dr. Wu with the actually there's 347 species of dinosaur, seems like this was something Crichton didn't realize when he wrote it. And we're told dinosaurs are born with egg teeth, a tip on their nose like a rhinoceros horn that helps them breach through their eggshells, we're told on page 108. Regis says Jurassic Park insists that its dinosaurs be treated in, quote, the most humane manner when Granite was examining the raptor too intensely. God complex. Again, we have two more instances where Hammond's wishes are manifested. He wants the grandkids on his island to the clearly demonstrated and vehement disapproval of Donald Janero, and he wants Regis to drop what he's doing and be a babysitter or a tour guide to his clearly articulated displeasure. On his island, Hammond expects everything to obey his every command. And this is a character flaw because dinosaurs don't obey his commands. Spared no expense. The idea that Hammond's built an all-out resort with the finest in guest accommodations is untrue. We'll see in several ways that, in fact, they cut many corners to keep costs down and have structured their entire labor reliance to be minimal. On the tour, Regis tells us in terms of operations, which means disregarding guest services, they run the entire island with only 20 personnel on page 98. And he tells us that, quote, at the moment, there's only 20 running the island. Dodgson's man. Are there any hints that Nedry is Dodson's man yet? Tim says he looks uninterested in the cloning techniques, as if he knew all this stuff already, and he's more interested in the next room. The only other thing Nedry does around here... Well, I guess we'll talk about Nedry later. Chekhov's gun. Uh, This term comes from Anton Chekhov's famous book on writing advice, uh, where he says, If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. Says Masterclass.com on a similar topic, Chekhov's gun is a dramatic principle that suggests that details within a story or a play will contribute to the overall narrative. This encourages writers to not make false promises in their narrative by including extemporaneous details that will not ultimately pay off by the last act, chapter, or conclusion. In other books on literary fundamentals, this element is considered cohesion, in that everything a creator puts into their story should serve the story meaningfully. It's all got to be related. It has to have cohesion. Or else, relative to your story, it's a waste of time and space, which is bad. Put in Jurassic Park terms, if you say in the first chapter there's a Mosasaur, in the second or third chapter it absolutely must eat somebody. If it's not going to eat somebody, it shouldn't be there. Good for us in Jurassic World, the Mosasaur does eat things. It's cool. Tim serves as our Anton Chekhov. He's an observant boy, and he just happens to take special notice of things that we, as readers, are going to see pay off down the line. In this chapter, Wu says there are, quote, some of the most virulent poisons in the world in storage of the fertilization room, in page 105, including helotoxins, colchinoids, beta-alkaloids, all kept in a series of syringes under the UV light, which will, quote, kill any living animal within a second or two. Tim would like to know more about those poisons, we're told. Tim is kind of a Jurassic park version of Chekhov. When he notices something, pay attention. It's going to pay off down the line. He even notices, when they're on the tour later on, uh, the aluminum struts in the distance of the aviary dome. And again, what Tim notices adds to the Chekhov's gun principle. They're going to get there. Don't worry. And as for getting there, we are getting there. <laughs> That's two-thirds through this giant chapter. Uh, that we're tackling here i want to say thank you to my guest danielle weigel uh, a class where you get to read jurassic park for credit is my kind of class and i want to sign off today also thanking you for joining me if you want to read along in the book add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about jurassic park you can do that by connecting with me i'm at ryan s at gmail.com and if you'd like to be a guest drop me a line and we can try and set something up we can rehash Tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park Cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the second-lapse graphic novelettes, the infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers, or me on my Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly. We're tuning in the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. We're also not that too. Until next time.